You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, Revival Characteristics and Results, Philip Edwards will examine the main characteristics of revival, obvious at Pentecost, and the result of it. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching, and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk to see all the latest news and the other ministries we have to offer. Also, you can follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now, over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. The first characteristic that I want to share with you is God does things in his own way. God does what he wants with whom he wants. So we have an established church, we have a certain structure, we know certain people do certain things, but it appears when God moves in on the scene, he doesn't care about these structures too much. He doesn't worry about who is in a position of of importance and who isn't, who, who, who should be the one who is ushering in this move of God. He has no consideration, it appears, for that at all. Of course he does have consideration, he considers all things, he's God after all. So scripture and history show us that this can be a problem to quite a number of believers, especially those who represent the establishment. We found this in the Welsh Revival, the, there were great preachers in Wales, they had experienced a whole lot of revivals before the Welsh Revival of 1904, and the church believed that a revival would come through the pulpit, that God would, mo- would move through these official channels, but he didn't at all. He moved in places where people were really surprised through people that, that really surprised um, that Evan Roberts wasn't a preacher. He wasn't even a church leader. He was none of these things, and yet he was the principal character whom God worked through. So God will not necessarily work through the hierarchy as we look at the church and he will not work necessarily through religious structures or established structures. He can if he wants to but often we see that he doesn't. Just think about Pentecost. It happened when there was a Jewish feast. There were literally tens of thousands of people in Jerusalem for the feast. Literally thousands of more people that were there. So imagine on Pentecost, they're all meeting in the temple. Literally hundreds, if not thousands of worshippers are in the temple area. They're worshipping God. But where does the Holy Spirit come? He comes and he seems to bypass the temple almost completely. And he goes to this little room where there's 120 people who were quite frightened, locked behind a door, worshipping God. And so the Holy Spirit ignores the temple where all the established religion is, and he comes into that room where nobodies are, frightened people. But you see, that is an example of what God does. He does what he wants, when he wants, with who he wants, and you could say that's a definition of God. I gave the example of the the Welsh revival. It came to a tiny little chapel. Uh, you can, if you read it and you're English, you can hardly pronounce the word of, of of it, and you'll miss it. So I'm not even going to try and do that. It's something like um, 
Banarath or something like that, but uh, it's terrible. So, uh, and I'm Welsh, so I do apologise. Or oh, well, my parents were both Welsh, so I'm really Anglo-Welsh. So, there we are. And, and so, and the third example is that of Azusa Street, that tremendous revival that brought about the the explosion of Pentecost and the speaking of tongues really throughout the world, more than the Welsh revival did. And in Azusa Street, it met in this, um, well, it was a, once a, a wooden-built Methodist church that had, had not been a church for years, and it was a builder's, he, he stored all his, his rubbish in there, really, and his building materials. And so this man, he took over this church. It couldn't have seated, I would have thought, not more than 100 people, but that's where the Azusa Street, the, the great revival of Pentecost came in 1905 in, in America, in Florida. So we're, we're wedded often to certain ideas. We have certain plans and views about things and they're not wrong, they're all right. They fit into the structure of the world that we know. And when this thing that God does, he does it, we hear tremendous amount of objection from people about how and the way that God is doing something. They would say things like, surely this can't be God. God wouldn't do this. As if they knew what God would or wouldn't do or could and couldn't do. God surely wouldn't do this. He wouldn't act like this. Just give a, a few examples to you. Remember when uh, Peter was invited into the house uh, of um, Cornelius? Surely God wouldn't send Jewish people into a Gentile house. No, have you got it right? That can't be right. God wouldn't do that. He did do it. And he shocked everyone. And Peter, when he went back to the center, he had to convince them that God had really done it and, and God was opening up the gospel to the Gentiles. Surely God wouldn't cause men and women to act in such a way that when passers-by walk past these God-fearing people that they mocked them, laughed at them and accused them of being drunk. No, that can't be God. God wouldn't do that sort of thing. God doesn't do that. Surely God wouldn't let his most ardent followers in the midst of Pentecost be flogged by the religious leaders of the day. Surely they've got something wrong. God wouldn't do that. God does. God dumps two of his precious children in Holland and appears to have abandoned them. God appears to do this stuff, but he doesn't abandon us. God does things in God's way, and in the end, you've just got to say, praise the Lord. That's it. I'm trying to listen until Daphne starts singing, praise the Lord, but it's coming. I'm sure it's coming. Okay, so it, it's, it's just God does things in a God way. And I, I assure you, if you are praying for revival and you want revival, you will be shocked what God does. Because often he doesn't just, I'm saying these are characteristics of him, but he might do something he's never done before because he's God. He's not limited to ideas and, and to different ways of working. I think in every church where I've been, uh, I've there has been times, I wouldn't say the necessary revivals, but there was a moving of the spirit. It was obvious, it was obvious. 
but every time there was a movement of the spirit people left it was though they were there waiting for God to come and do something and when he turned up they were the first out the door and often they never came back it was like they wanted God but on their terms I've seen it over and over again and I'm not talking about revivals just movements of the spirit where God becomes more close and real to us in church scripture says that when God turns up he will reveal the thoughts of people's hearts I'm sure you think you're good Uh, you are good you're righteous and holy and poor okay And, and so we think we're all right and we think by praying for revival the people will get all right like us but I tell you something when God draws close in a time like a revival what he does he exposes what's in your heart and you didn't even know it was there now you might have been raking through your heart for a good number of years thinking oh, well I've got myself into well with God's help that is into a pretty good place I'm, I feel quite comfortable with what God's doing until he turns up and then he really exposes the hearts of men it says this in Luke 2 33 and 34 uh, 35 this child talking about Jesus is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against see they would speak against Jesus so that the thoughts of the many hearts will be revealed and of course we saw the hearts of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and those that were resistant to the, the things that the real things of God their hearts were exposed 1 Peter 2 8 says this a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall this is Jesus now the idea of a stone is you either use it as a stepping stone if you don't it'll become a stumbling block to your life a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall they stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for so we can earnestly pray for revival and then when it comes be bitterly opposed to it because of what's taken place I want to read a little bit from just really a little bit a book here about the Azusa Street Revival and it's a man called Frank Bartleman and I just point out what happened to him and this was really before the revival came in any sort of fullness he said by this time the spirit of intercession had so possessed me that I prayed almost day and night I fasted much also until my wife almost despaired of my life at times the sorrow of my Lord had gripped me at times I feared that I might not live to realize the answer to my prayers and tears for revival some were even afraid that I was losing my mind they could not understand my tremendous concern so the point I'm making his friends got really concerned about him is he going mad his wife was so concerned 
I don't, as I read that, I don't think she hardly ever saw him. Uh, but when she did, uh, he was fasting all the time. He was praying all the time. He was crying and weeping all the time. You think, this is, I, I can't cope with this. This is too much. And so people, when they see this, instead of going forward and embracing revival, they pull themselves back. So what I'm trying to paint for you is a realistic picture of what happens when God comes close. Remember that passage we looked in as I, it says, why don't you come God like the fire that boils water in front of you and burns up all the twigs and sticks and they crackle with fire. So I'm, I'm trying to set this scene that it isn't anything like you've seen before. Unless you've been and visited and stood in the midst of a revival, you won't really know what it is until it would happen to you. People recoil at excess, don't they? You do, I'm sure. When you see someone excessive in any way, you take a little step back. You go, you know, even if someone is really gushy and loving in that way, you take a little step back and you go, well, that's a bit excessive. If someone is, is just over exuberant about something, you go, well, they're just a little bit over the top, as though you were Mr. Normal, as though you were perfect in all that you did and everyone else is a judgment about where you are. Well, that's what it is, isn't it? Someone said a fanatic... A fanatic is someone who loves God more than you do. Of course, that's how we label them. They're just, they're just too much. Arthur Wallace said this, and I've quoted him quite a number of times. He said, if you find a revival that has not been spoken against, you need to look again to make sure it's a revival. So he's warning us, and there is lots of warning in Scripture that is, it is outside of the normal bounds of, of respectability, of normality, of what we're so used to, our plans and our structures. It's beyond it. It's really beyond it. It's God. So when God uh, moved upon that little... Um, insignificant fellowship in Toronto of which I had the privilege to go and visit in 1994 I heard the criticisms and when I came back to England I heard all the criticisms if it was of God why doesn't it happen in here why should I go all the way to Canada when God could easily come to Britain and bless us well, when I heard comments like that, I thought, well, you don't deserve the blessing of God, actually. I'm glad he's gone to Canada. And I was quite happy to jump on a plane and get in the middle of that and touch something of the presence of God in a very vibrant and a real way. What arrogance. What arrogance to even question why God does and doesn't do things. I'm not saying we have to swallow everything hook, line and sinker to say, oh, this is God, because the devil's very crafty at weaving his way in, but better take a step back, say less, keep watching and keep opening, keep yourself open to see what God is doing. Jonathan Edwards said this, people are very ready to be suspicious of what they have not felt themselves thus effectively making their own experience their rule of judgment 
he come under a lot of criticism because he found himself in the the midst of this revival and he was a fairly conservative uh, sort of a man and a, a preacher although God really got hold of him but he heard this criticism all the time from people as I said this doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask questions is this of God it's strange I'm not used to this ask the questions but but draw back from being judgmental 1 Thessalonians 5 19 and 20 it says this do not so it's a positive thing first do not put out the spirit's fire but treat pro, and do not treat prophecy with contempt in other words be open to the things of the spirit don't be judgmental be open but then he goes on to say a warning test everything hold on to the good and avoid everything that is evil so be open you want to embrace everything that God is but if you have this question in well don't judge but 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 just keep looking and look for the fruit of what's going on especially in the lives of the people who are manifesting these things Number two characteristic then that we'll see probably in all revivals, and we saw it in the, in the Pentecost revival, expect signs and wonders. Expect them to come. God is a supernatural God. So he will surprise us with the supernatural. Now, it's not supernatural to God. It's quite normal to God. He knows it's supernatural to us. He knows what shocks us and amazes us. He knows what a sign and wonder is to us. But to him, he's not shocked at all. Revival is God visiting his people. The supernatural God visiting his people. Isn't it interesting? Even you might pray a lot and pray for different things. And when you get an answer to prayer, you say, oh isn't it wonderful that God did that it's like you see we're not expecting him to do it and when he does it we've got this little shock horror that he's done it I would like us to always be excited that God has done something but get to a place where we're not shocked that he's done it oh Philip I think it's wonderful that God sorted all your problems out uh, but I expected that I would take that you think it as the church sees more of the answers to prayer and the supernatural we take it as not unnatural for these things to happen continually all the time it says in Acts 2 and 19 he says I will show talking about when he comes with revival I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and billows of smoke he says you won't miss it and it will be exciting and evident for everyone to see so through the centuries God has visited his people again and again and I think he's sought to restore them to what I would call apostolic or New Testament Christianity to bring us back to the place where we should be in Acts when God poured out his spirit there were signs and wonders and supernatural things they were an integral part of God turning up in fact you got used to it remember I said about Paul 
he did he did super miracles uh, extraordinary miracles as though there were miracles that were just ordinary oh uh, don't worry about julia she's just done an ordinary miracle we're looking for an extraordinary miracle here we've got so used to the ordinary miracles that's the way they were speaking when they spoke about paul and the sort of things that he did in acts 2 and 43 it says this everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done not the odd one now and again many it was a daily occurrence to see the supernatural acts 5 and 12 the apostles performed it said many miracle signs and wonders now as you read through the book of acts you might think well it's always the apostles that did everything well i think the full title of the book of acts is the acts of the apostles it's a record really of, of peter and Paul and how they started the whole thing off but there were many others that got hold of this and they were used we know that Philip was another man that did and, and Stephen did miracles so what it said about Stephen the one that they stoned and he wasn't an apostle remember Stephen a man full of God's grace and power he did great wonders it says and miraculous signs Stephen not an apostle a deacon in the church and yet he was attributed to doing miraculous things and uh, wonderful things so signs and wonders in the early church in the apostolic church they were uh, strategically linked to the preaching of the gospel and the winning of many to Christ it's as though the miracle was a calling card come because God is here God is doing supernatural things in your midst well immediately your attention is drawn to the miraculous and there the preaching goes out and it's the preaching that transforms the human soul a miracle will never save you a miracle will not convert you the word of truth will convert you but the miracle will draw you so you hear many people come to church because they want a miracle from god unfortunately they walk away with nothing and say none of it's real now imagine if all those people came and received i believe a good number would listen to the message and embrace it more if they saw more happening it says in acts 8 uh, 4 to 8 it says those who had been scattered so we're not just talking about Philip here we're talking about all of those that were scattered and we know there was great persecution in Jerusalem in that first century and many were, th were thrown out as it were those who had been scattered they preached the word wherever they went notice they went to preach the word they knew that people would be saved by the preaching of the word Philip went down to a city in Samaria and he proclaimed Christ there he went there to preach the word when the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did they all paid close attention to what he said you see it was seeing the miracles that caused them to play pay close attention it would you if you went to a church and you saw this amazing amazing miracle of someone's blind eyes opening or someone bound in a wheelchair started to run and then he says well i'm now going to share some truth with you you'd listen to the man he had you'd think well he's earned me he's earned the the right for me to listen to him and of course 
God knows what we're like. So with shrieks, it says, evil spirits came out of many and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city by receiving the word and seeing the miraculous power of God. In Mark 16 and 20, it says, then, then the disciples. So it wasn't just the apostles or uh, the, the super elders, as it were, or deacons in the church. It said, then the disciples, that's ordinary people like you and me, we're all disciples. Then the disciples went out and they preached everywhere. They preached, you see, always they preached. They shared the truth of the gospel. They preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them, confirming his word by signs that accompanied it. Again, we see the signs. It's so vital to support the message that you're preaching. Hebrews 2 and 4 says this, God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles. So he says, Jesus came he spoke a message but he also testified to the truth of the message by everything that he did the signs the wonders and the various miracles and the gifts of the holy spirit distributed according to his will some of this is about us being bold enough to step out and to start praying for the sick or speaking what we believe would be a prophetic word or you know coming against a demonic influence part of it we we want to sign without doing anything or it's not possible you have to do something for god to then work upon what you're doing for it all to perform okay uh right a, a missionary you might have heard of this missionary he's called willie burton he was a missionary to what was the belgium congo then and he said this praying for the sick has been the key that has opened hundreds of villages and thousands of heathens here in the Congo. A Pentecostal missionary who knew that he needed to move in the power of the miraculous and he would see many, many coming to Christ. Signs and wonders, therefore, they're not e enough on their own. They need to have the word. But can I say the word is not enough on its own. Now, the word can get a man or woman born again of the Spirit, but it doesn't convince people. Some people hear the message again and again and again and again, but if there was a sign and a wonder that accompanied it, it would be far easier to lay hold of the truth. The gospel is the proclamation of the word, and it is the demonstration of God's power. We've got so used to not seeing the miraculous, we just think the gospel is John 3.16, thou shalt be born again. But that was never the intention of God and never the intention of the early church. Matthew 24.24, 24, it says, For false Christs and false prophets will appear, and they'll perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect if it were possible. So, if we're just looking all the time for the signs and the wonders and the miraculous, this scripture says, be on your guard because the devil is in there as well. He's doing the miraculous. He is doing stuff. And of course, we read that a little bit earlier about Philip when he went to Samaria, but he came across a person there that was doing signs and wonders like himself, but he was being empowered by the devil. This is in Acts 8, 9 and 11. 
Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and he amazed all the people in Samaria. See, he was amazing them with what he did, so they were listening to what he was saying. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention. It wasn't because he boasted, it's because they saw miraculous things. They gave him their attention. So we really need to see this demonstration of power in the church again, and we know that many more people will give the church the attention that the church should have. But it won't happen simply through the spoken word of the gospel. It needs the power as well. This man is the divine power, they called him, known as the great power because he could do these wonderful things. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. Two simple tests then will help us work out whether uh, it's genuine or not. Now, as I said, just take a step back, just listen carefully. You want to see the fruit of certain things. Counterfeit signs and wonders. Obviously, this man, Simon, was performing these things around the time of Christ. They, if they coexist with someone who preaches, it's an easy test. What's he preaching? Is he exalting Christ? Is he preaching the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Christ? Very hard for someone who is coming from the other side with signs and wonders to preach about Christ and the blood sacrifice of Christ and those things. So listen to the preacher and what he's saying. Just don't be taken up with the signs, but listen to what he's saying. We should also look for the fruit of righteousness in those that stand before us and open up the scriptures to us. Uh, all of you know me to an extent. You know my wife, you know my family, you know something about me. You have every right to judge me, not simply to turn up and listen to me because I'm bothering to speak, but you can examine my life and my family and my relationship and say, well, I'm, ju I'm judging what I see by the righteousness that I think this man walks in. And so we can give credit. So those are a couple of the, the built-in tests or safeguards. The third characteristic are physical manifestations. Now, unfortunately, these do freak people out a little bit, but they are there and um, they do happen. So again, don't be afraid or don't be overjudgmental. This was the observation of a, a Presbyterian minister. Uh, this was in Ulster in 1859. Through the instrumentality of the word and prayer, convictions, often the most powerful, even to the convulsing of the whole frame, the trembling of every joint, intense burning of the heart, and complete prostration of strength have been produced. So he's seeing what God is doing and he is not passing judgment. He's saying this is what happens and it's not happening to one person again and again and again. One of the phenomena at, at Toronto was that people would shake. They would shake, shake, shake and then people would be jumping and uh, they would jump sometimes three or four feet into the air 
but but just jumping up like like they were on a pongo stick and you go what what is going on here and you're thinking well i wouldn't do that until i did it and then you think what is wrong with me well there's nothing wrong with you god is being god maybe god's having some fun i don't know i mean i i was sh i shook my wrists so much that they hurt they were physically hurting me so when when it started i i was trying to stop myself doing all this stuff because my body couldn't couldn't quite take it it couldn't and uh, but it's god it's god convulsing people throwing people onto the floor so it presents us you see with a challenge are you comfortable with this do you want this do you want to convulse on the floor do you want this stuff it's like oh no i wouldn't do that well you're saying i don't want revival then because unfortunately it comes it's part of the package and the more you step back from it the less that god can get close to you because in stepping back from it you're stepping back from god i remember a guy i heard him a long time ago i think his name was bryn jones and he he said something like this he said he remembers as a young man in wales so he must have been quite a, a youngster or the story was told to him although he's passed away now he says he remembers a, a lady telling a story that she went into a church where the revival was was moving powerfully in this little chapel or church and the miners had come straight from work and come into the chapel because that's all they wanted to do to gather and worship god and this lady apparently she was from another church further up the valley uh, who weren't experienced in the wonderful things of god so she thought she would come and have a look and so she heard all the noise going on inside and she opened the door and she saw these welsh miners dancing on the pews with their great obnail boots on and she was horrified at the very thought that this would ever happen in the house of god and how could they do it and she slammed the door and walked back up to her church well her church never experienced the blessing this one did now i'm not saying wearing obnail boots and jumping on the seats is going to bring the blessing of god no you do that because of the closeness of god so you can't put this stuff on you can't think oh i'll go and, and i'll have a bit of convulsing and see what happens or i'll throw myself on the floor on sunday morning and and see what happens no god throws you on the floor god convulses you god gets you dancing on the furniture in hobnail books he could have taken his boots off i know he was over exuberant but there we are god does god things in god's way some quotations that might help us in maintaining a bit of a correct balance so all of these things is balanced because like i said the devil weaves his way in people think oh the devil at church well the devil turns up at lots of churches actually and he doesn't always sit on the back row sometimes he sits on the oh i never said that okay no uh, so uh, some some quotations here len mules len mules was with um weck the world evangelistic crusade organization he says god is bigger and greater than all our concepts of revival like i said if you could describe it fully it wouldn't be a revival it's beyond our ability to describe what it is we must learn to accept him god through whoever he comes 
and whatever there are accompanying manifestations just 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 watch just watch and say if this is God I want it when I went to Toronto I remember that first night all this stuff going on and because I'd just come off the plane and gone to the meeting and I'm looking I'm looking and my thought was God I think it was about 200 pound the fare then I said Lord I've spent 200 pound I've come all this way I don't want to stand here like a melon all week if they're experiencing God I want this and of course by night two I was as crazy as the rest of them you know not that I had chosen to do crazy things but God came in a tremendous powerful way see it's being open wanting it and don't care what people are saying anyway when you're in this environment everyone's doing it anyway so you don't stand out because it's just just the way that things are Kerry Evans he said this it was about how people could be swept along by the enthusiasm of of revival but people aren't always converted they might get on board and be jubilant but they're not always converted he said this conviction is not conversion nor is awakening repentance there were many who had been on the crest of a wave of jubilation for well nigh a whole year and when the jubilation subsided they sought to regain it by artificial means it is though the spirit comes in waves and and it's, it's a bit like surfing you surf the wave and cause the energy of it subsides don't try and muster anything up wait till the next wave comes and ride that one the spirit seems to operate sometimes like that not realizing that the holy spirit's work works through the imagination and the emotion to the conscience to produce repentance and through the conscience to the will in order to lead to conversion so there are many people who enjoyed the jubilance of the Welsh revival but never actually came to a point of repentance and conversion they were just enjoying it all and of course when it all subsided they were nowhere to be seen many might be swept along by the emotion of all that is happening but never really converted Jonathan Edwards said this we should distinguish the good from the bad and not judge the whole by the part there's something that's going on that you aren't comfortable with and you don't like don't judge the whole thing there could be something in there that isn't quite right but don't throw it all out as rubbish we have to deal with that that the enemy has, has sneaked in Evan Roberts said a danger is that when there comes a pulse in the service uh, uh, sorry a pause in the service a pulse a pause in the service someone begins to swing the pendulum instead of raising the weights I like that let the let the raising of the weights cause the pendulum to swing not us swinging the pendulum we need the genuine movement of the Spirit of God I think it's almost impossible to tell the difference you might sense something in your spirit that's wrong but it's sometimes impossible to say is this God 
Is this the devil or is this flesh? What, what's going on here? Why, why is it like this? Well, after it's best perhaps to not to judge then, but to look at the person's life after that's had, you know, a lot of experience of, of God coming close to him and ask the question, is this person exalting Jesus in their lives now or, or have they just moved on from that exciting experience? Is the person hungry for more of God or did they just come for the experience of getting close to the fire? Is love the hallmark of their character? Is there a greater desire for spiritual maturity in this person? They want more to grow in God. Is there evidence of more spiritual fruit in their lives? You see, if God has come close and he's touched you and he's dealt with things in your life, it will only propel you forward in him. It will only give you a greater passion for him. You will only produce more fruit. But if it wasn't genuine, then none of those things would happen. The fourth characteristic I have here is the conviction of sin. Sin, or the conviction of sin, is the hallmark always of genuine revival. It will deal with the sins in the Christian's life, and then it will bring people outside of the church to God and deal with their sin as well. John 16, 8 says, when he, that is the Holy Spirit, comes, and because when we say God coming close, we're saying God the Holy Spirit coming close to us. When he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment. Acts 2 and 37, it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers what shall we do so the holy spirit was there bringing conviction to these thousands that were listening listening to peter that day it says they were cut to the heart they were pricked or they were there was a piercing there was a stabbing uh, a stinging a smiting of people i mean it doesn't sound too pleasant does it they helped they they felt pain as peter preached and the spirit of god came they felt awful on the inside. It's as though this hurts me. And of course, if you're living in sin and God was to come close, the fact that he came close to you and revealed it and touched it, it would hurt you. It really would hurt you like it hurt these people. They were cut to the heart, it says. God visits. And as he visits with his glory and his holiness, that which is not holy is affected by the presence of God. Often people, when they come close to God, everything else around them is shut out. It's though that God has just come to them. They could be in a hall of a hundred or thousands of people, but the impression for the person is that somehow God came to me. He came to me. I don't know how many times I've heard people come up to me and say, Philip, why did you keep looking at me when I wasn't? Or why were you speaking directly to me as though I'd read their letters or their diary or something? I didn't. But for, for the, the time you're speaking, it is God that is speaking. And it's though it's just them in the hall. It's them in the room. And God is just speaking to them. But it's amazing how God... 
can do that thing. Arthur Wallace says, conviction of sin is perhaps the outstanding feature of revival. To cleanse hearts, it is heaven. To convict hearts, it is hell. When God is in the midst. It's, it's an awful thing for convicted or people who are living in sin to come close to God. And, 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 and God is, uh, I'm going to say God's too kind sometimes. You can't say that anything about God like that. You can't say anything negative about God, you'd be wrong. But it's though he is really compassionate with people. And sometimes you think, God, why don't you just come and land on them really heavy and sort them out? Because they definitely need a dose of you. Uh, because they're not listening to anything because God doesn't do what you want. God does what he wants. See, a man who is generous... When you're preaching on giving, he thinks it's a wonderful sermon. But if a man is mean and stingy and you preach about giving, he thinks it's a terrible sermon and you shouldn't preach those sorts of things. Of course, of course. The Welsh Revival, 1904, Evan Roberts said this, Friday night meetings was characterised by the intensity of conviction as it fell on it or it felt in it scores found themselves on their knees unable to utter a syllable and quite overcome with a sense of guilt some of these people fell in a heap and others cried out pitifully and loudly in their desire for mercy you think why on earth did they go back the next friday then because they wanted to get right they wanted God to come close. They wanted to be purged of everything. Isn't that what David said? He said, God, cleanse me, purge me, that I wouldn't carry anything evil in my heart at all. And that's what genuine people want to do. Say, God, if there's something there that needs purging, will you come please and purge? Because if you don't, I'll probably carry on doing this forever. Please come and purge me. The fifth characteristic I have is inspired preaching. Oh, I love this one. Peter's sermon in Acts. It was spontaneous. It was inspirational. It was prophetic. And it was convicting. I know, I'm pretty sure he didn't get his books out and make notes and prepare it as diligently as I do <laughs> week by week. I'm sure he never, I'm sure he just stood and the Spirit of God came on him with such power that he just, it just brought people to a confrontation with God that it caused them to, to react. He focused his message, and you can read it there in the early chapters of Acts. He focused it on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, every sermon can't be about the work and the, uh, uh, and the, the person of Jesus, but it needs to be woven in there somewhere. Jesus needs to be on the lips of the preacher sometime in that sermon. Sometimes he needs to bring the person of Jesus central to the whole thing. So his message in talking about Jesus and the work of Jesus, it was so relevant, it was pointed, it was rugged. It was rugged because he was a rugged man. His, his language and the way he spoke, remember, he was, uh, we got the impression he was just a, 
a fisherman and, and he was all man in that sense and very rugged rugged and bold preaching you know can be me speaking and you listening and no more than that other preaching is intellect to intellect and that has an effect as well but perhaps the best preaching is heart to heart if you're passionate about the things of God and I'm passionate about the things of God what happens when I'm speaking they come and they light a fire in you they, they set you on fire somebody once said you know he said do you know why preachers uh, have paper when they come and stand in the pulpit no no he said they want to light a fire and there's nothing better for lighting a fire than some paper that's why we come with paper to the pulpit we want to light a fire and so that's what I want to do in you I want to light a fire in you a fire of passion on the inside of you Peter Peter's preaching produced an appeal from the people it it, it got a response from him when the people heard this they were cut to their heart and they said to Peter and the others brothers what shall we do you've 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 set a fire in us we need to respond to this the impact of such preaching does not depend on natural gifts thank God for all the natural gifts that teachers have but when the revival comes it is though God does everything his way preachers change so often an anointing comes where there was not an anointing I read another little illustration in a Welsh revival there was a man a lovely man and um, he pastored this church in Wales and everybody loved him uh, he, he was spoke slowly and unfortunately he stammered as well a little bit so uh, if they didn't love him so much I think they would have chucked him out because people are good at chucking leaders out sometimes uh, and anyway so so he he preached like this and they loved him and they put up with this and it was difficult to to, to follow but when the revival came he never stammered once he spoke faster more energetic and the man never stammered once the revival in Wales lasted about nine months soon as it subsided he went back to stammering and being slow again see there was an unction upon him an anointing that came that came at that specific time it was the power of the Spirit of God resting on the preachers so whatever preachers you think oh he's reasonable or he's all right or he's listenable to you can be sure if they're genuine before God and the Spirit of God rests on them they will become dynamic and exciting and powerful Character six, the breakdown of denominationalisms. All these denominations we have, all the things that separate us, we've built these walls as Christians, whether it's Baptists, Pentecostals, uh, Anglicans, Catholics, we build all these walls. We build it to protect ourselves and to keep these other groups at bay so they can't come too close. When God starts to move, these walls come down. And it's not that God necessarily breaks them down. People break them down themselves. They just start to love their brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what badge of denomination they're wearing. There's no sectional interest anymore. There's no party spirit. Revival brings people together. It says in Acts 2, 
44 and 47 all the believers were together and had everything in common so they were together as believers they came and brought what they had the possessions they had together selling their possessions and good they gave as uh, to any as they needed every day they continued to meet together in the temple court so that they brought their things together they brought themselves together to meet in the uh, and, and to worship together and it says they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts so they brought their heart and spirit to the other person as well their things who they were as people and then their very being they brought in they started to appreciate people of other denominations or people who didn't think quite like they did or held a different position doctrinally history teaches us due to human failure in the long-term revivals instead of bringing us together and holding us together because of our fallen nature we start to divide again and build walls of separation amongst us it's as though we can't stop ourselves the final characteristic is the overflow of the spirit into the community revivals start with God's people to revive that which was dead to bring a pulse a shock a life a fire into the people of God but after this it moves out into society out into the community to touch the unsaved it says in Acts 2 and 41 those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to the number that day Acts 2 and 47 and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved Acts 4 and 4 but many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000 so they were revived themselves this small company of people this 120 on the day of Pentecost they were so on fire that it, it, it went out then into the community Acts 5 and 14 nevertheless more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number and Acts 6 and 7 so the word of the Lord spread the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith it spread out from what God had first done scripture and history shows us that revival had the dramatic effect of large-scale communities coming to Christ a couple of examples there in New England a revival in 1735 50,000 people were added to the church and there was only a population of 250,000 so 50,000 more came in this short period with this revival that went on in the USA again another revival in the 19 oh, sorry 1830s there were a hundred thousand converts in one day one day 100,000 people coming in and in Britain in 1859-61 one million people joined the evangelical churches in two years two to three years the evangelical churches grew by a million and then these these men and women that were saved they went out into the mission field for years and years and years and took the revival blessing really as it were 
and took it to these far nations. The 20th century has produced the most astonishing numerical growth in the church. In South America, in 1900, there were 50,000 Protestants in, in South America who were Protestant Christians. Of course, vast numbers of Catholics. By 1970, there were 20 million uh, Protestants in South America. And this year, 2020 or last year, there are 86 million Protestants, let alone all the Catholics that are there. But many Catholics came over and they didn't join a sort of a, a stuffy church. They, they became Pentecostals. That was the whole thing. The life of Pentecost came and just won the hearts. And so the church in South America is enormous. And especially in Brazil, they've enjoyed many revivals. In 1904, there was no such thing as a Pentecostal. They didn't even exist. But now there are 300 million Pentecostals worldwide, 300 million in just that hundred so years. That Pentecostal experience just went throughout the world and has continued to bring in revivals. So expect God to do things his way. Expect signs and wonders. Expect physical manifestations. Expect conviction of sin. Expect inspired preaching. Inspect, expect breakdown of denominations and expect an overflow of the church into the community. We need it. We need it without a doubt. But do you want it? You have to ask those questions. You've been well warned. Now, I want to look just, probably won't be as long this one, I don't know though. When a preacher says, uh, I'm just looking at my watch, that means absolutely nothing when a preacher looks at his watch or says anything like this. Never listen to them. That's the only time they lie when they say things like that. Or they take their watch off and they put it on the, or sometimes they put their watch on the, on the platform, on the, on the lectern there at the start. Have you seen them do that? And then when it gets near the end, they put their watch on. That means nothing. They're terrible. They're just messing with your head. They are. They really are. Okay, right. So uh, this is the results of revival that we're going to look at now. Large-scale spiritual and social impact. It has a, a tremendous impact on the spiritual, the church, and it has a, an impact on those outside. We said before, I don't, several weeks ago now, about it was like there was a strategy of God. He was the Lord of hosts. He was the Lord Almighty. And ever since the Garden of Eden, he has been advancing like an army to, to, to capture the world again, to, to enlist men and women into his army, to, to push the, the enemy back. That's a picture that you can hold and that's legitimate in Scripture. And so... A revival is like a concentration of force. I don't know much about wars, only what I see on telly. I'm, I'm thankful that I never lived in a war and I appreciate all those that have, you know, taken up arms to defend people. I'm only admirable for them. And I just thank God that we've lived in a country that's been free of that for so long. But it's like, it's like the enemy is everywhere and now God is going to break through with, with a, a real forceful break 
and then put soldiers behind the enemy lines as it were and so that's like a a war type tactic of putting all the pressure in one, one place concentrating your forces to to break through spiritual results then that we see when God has come with this revival power this revival breakdown we see said that the church it overflows into the community we're a bit locked in aren't we really I mean we have little revival efforts but really we're locked into our four walls people don't care what we do in there don't worry about that as long as we contain ourselves and don't spill out too much they're, they're, they're quite happy with us and of course most Christians are afraid to spill out anyway they're just going to stay in there so, but we see with, with revival that, that stops they start to spread out into the community the second thing he raises up great preachers I've mentioned that as one tremendous thing now often, I met about that Welshman who the, the, the great anointing sort of stopped as, as the revival stopped but, but the revivals have brought great preachers to the fore I want to mention one man to you his name is D.L. Moody he came out of the uh, revival in America in 1858-1860. You might have heard that name. He came to England. He came to London in 1847 and he preached to 2.5 million, million people in London. And that was in 1874. Amazing, amazing. He just had this tremendous oratory and anointing that people were simply just drawn to him. I could have gone through a whole list of people that have, have come out of revival. I just mentioned this man, you might not have heard of him, Henry Grattan Guinness, 1858. He founded a missionary Bible school and through his teaching, because what, what people want to do in ministry is leave a legacy in other words they want to see others developed as a result of their ministry what they do shouldn't just die with them somehow it should be invested in others well he ended up seeing after his setting up of this college he saw uh, 1300 missionaries go out into the world that was his vision that's what God gave him so he was inspirational for these men and women to just give their lives to take in the gospel out this evangelical gospel the third thing that happens in revival uh, on a large scale is that the converts that come in through a revival they're born in the fire what do I mean by this well how you start your Christianity is, is how it, it, it develops and grows so where you started your Christianity is really important. Who was around you when you came to Christ? Were they people full of faith? Were they, were they dynamic? Were they evangelistic? What sort of people were they that were around you? And what you got born again into you had that effect of, of pressing you into a mold. Well, re just think of a minute people who were born into revival. I mean, they knew nothing else they just thought this is what Christian life is it's this passionate exciting revival life most of us have not been born into that we've been born into something fairly conservative 
um, a little bit dead, I'd say that, yeah, a little bit dead, um, religious, you know, and of course that's, that's, that becomes our Christian experience. So those that are born in revival, they're passionate people. They know nothing else. No one's, no one's told them that they're not supposed to be like that, and all Christians are like that. So they have high levels of faith and high levels for believing in the supernatural. And the, the fourth thing that, that we see happens uh, amongst the, the Christian folk is an upsurge in evangelical mission activities. Edwin Orr, he said this, every revival in the homeland is felt within a decade of foreign fields. In other words, what happens with a revival in any part of the world, it goes out. Now, Korea, uh, South Korea, has known quite a revival of God. I mean, those of you who know about uh, Paul Yonggi Cho's church, although his name is David Yonggi Cho now, how it's, uh, you know, over a million people in his church. If I said to you, how many Korean pastors are there in England? I wonder if you could guess sort of what sort of figure it would be. It's about 400. There are 400 Korean pastors here in the UK. How many Nigerian pastors are there? How many West Indian pastors are there? You see, where revivals have happened in the world, people have gone out. It is part of the revival fire that's into it. And a lot of them have ended up coming here and establishing works here. And, and because of what has happened, God has just sown them around the world to bring their revival around the world. I've got some illustrations of things started in the 18th and 19th century. The British Baptist Missionary Society started in 1792. 200 years later, it still exists. You can Google it, find out they're still there. 200 years later, that was birthed in revival. The London Mission Society, the Church Mission Society, the Religious Tract Society, they all still exist hundreds of years later and they're spread throughout the world. The British Foreign and Bible Society, the first Sunday schools were established in 1780, the first city mission in Glasgow in 1826. It's still there. They're still, they might have changed their name, they might have made themselves more upbeat, but that spirit that created that and birthed that is still there. The YMCA in 1844, Salvation Army in 1865, William and uh, Catherine Booth, they were evangelists in the revival of 1858-1860. This illustrates for us that revivals bring a permanent change to our society, to our spirituality, to our church. It just doesn't all evaporate. It goes on sometimes for decades or hundreds of years, the effect of revival. Britain between or sorry, the world between 1500 and the year 2000, 500 years, the world has enjoyed no less than 54 recognized revivals of God. 54, that means over the last 500 years, we have experienced on average a revival every 10 years throughout the world. It's time we have one here. It's gone a long time. We've had a Hebridean one, and then we've had 
you know, the Welsh one. We need an English revival. Now, I'm a Welshman, so I don't mind how many Wales get, so I'm all for that. But we need English revivals as well. We need revivals in this land. It dates back to 1850-something, then when England last had a revival in this land. Now, the see, there are social results as well. They were the spiritual results. I've said with the social results that large numbers of the community come to Christ and of course that changes the, the religious and the moral climate of the country. There is, a, there is what I call a spiritual climate in our land. And I think it's quite cool, even cold. So people aren't impressed because it's not warm enough. It's not hot enough. It's quite cool. It, it doesn't have the effect that it should have. But a revival raises the temperature, raises the moral state of the country and the religiousness that the, the people generally are, are more appreciative of. An example of this is in New England in the uh, 18th century. A man, Connaught, said, the conversion of 50,000 people, he said it revolutionized society and determined the destiny of our country. This is a historian, not a Christian historian. And we know that many historians have looked back to see the movement of God and said this has saved a revolution in our country or this has saved our country from X, Y and Z. So they have a powerful effect outside of the church. In Wales in 1904-05, it says three months of the revival did more to sober the country than the, temper the temperance efforts of many years. In three months, more people got more sober and dry and never drank again in three months compared with all the work of the temperance society for years and years and years now I'm not I'm not saying anything negative about them they were working as hard but when God turns up things take off on a new pace it says during the revival the total Saturday night takings of one pub in Lord George's constituency was four and a half pence old pence that is that was the takings of a Sunday night pub well a Saturday night pub I don't think that pub lasted too much longer it says in Ulster, a large whiskey distillery in Belfast was put up for auction. The trade had so fallen off. In the Connor area, two pubs had to close because the publicans got converted and a third closed for lack of trade. The Mays race course in October in 1859, it drew only 500 people instead of the usual 10,000. Throughout Ulster, it says, judges several times found themselves without any cases to try. Wouldn't that be great? We put all the police out of business. I mean, all they'll be doing is getting people pick up litter and things like that, you know, and trying to control all these cars. I mean, it was just fantastic, fantastic. Social action then by Christians. I mentioned these names, you'll, you'll know them. William Wilberforce, of course, the abolition of slavery, John Howard and Elizabeth Try, prison reform, Henry Dunant, the Red Cross, Thomas um, Bernardo, the world's largest private orphanage, the Earl of Shaftesbury. It says here, he initiated more royal commissions 
on social conditions than any other parliamentarian in English history. Reformed working hours stopped the exploitation of women and children in mines, prohibited the use of boys to clean chim chimneys, transformed the lot of the insane from that of abused prisoners to protective patients. The removal, the, the, the outpouring of God so touches Christians, men and women like this, who are in positions of authority and influence. It changes the whole nature of the country. We were a Christian country. What I mean that, I mean these wonderful men and women, they were moved by the Spirit of God. They came through a revival and the revival had the effect of them changing the laws, changing society, changing the way that people. So the, the revival just doesn't touch the church. It touches the whole nation, whether people come to Christ or not. Uh, David Lord George, he was Prime Minister in the UK. He was the last Liberal uh, Prime Minister of this country between 1916 and 1922. He said this, The Evangelical Revival was the movement that improved the condition of the working classes, its wages, its hours of labour and otherwise. He acknowledged that the transformation that took place amongst ordinary working people was not the work of politicians. It was the work of politicians who were influenced by the effect of God coming and moving in their lives in a powerful way. Done it. Sorry? Okay. Uh, Dunant said this, an outpouring of the Spirit will always recharge the batteries of social concern. Two last things that revival do. One of them is to bring fellowship. I've sort of mentioned this a little bit about togetherness. Arthur Wallace said this, true biblical fellowship is one of the most beautiful fruits of the outpouring of the Spirit. It says in Acts 2 and 44, 45, all the believers were together and had everything in common selling their possessions and good they gave to anyone as he needed. So we see this tremendous fellowship comes amongst Christians as believers. Not, not people working had it, it just becomes so natural. Communion, a common union, having things uh, in common with one another. We found in the revival also that quarrels between Christians ended, divisions in churches they were dealt with. In 1858 and 60, in America and in Britain, Edward Orr wrote this, with scarce an exception, the churches were working together as one. One result was interdenominational and non-denominational faith missions, such as the China Inland Mission. It wasn't rooted in the denomination. Christians came together and dealt with that. In Wales, in 1904 and 5, old prejudices were broken down and people changed. The last thing I have here for you is the whole thing of having new structures. When we have a revival, when God moves in revival power, new structures always emerge out of what God has been done. It is that the old structures can't hold what God is doing. 
Of course, Jesus speaks about the old wineskins and the new wineskins. It's found in Matthew 9, 14 and 17. It says, Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guest of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tears worse. Neither do not men pour new wine. All right. Yeah, yeah. How much have we got? Two minutes. coming back in now. Okay. Sorry about that. I never know whether I'm just to continue and you hear me or not. Uh, so anyway, definitely got preached to on her own there for a little bit. Don't worry about that. Um, so I, de I dealt with the Earl of Shaftesbury. Did you hear that? Unmute me, Mum. Okay. Um, where where did I get to before you all disappeared? You got all better there now. Did you hear about the Earl of Shaftesbury? Yeah, David Lloyd. David Lloyd. Okay, okay. Lord George. Yes, okay. Uh, a couple of things, just finally. Uh, two more things. Results of revival. One is this tremendous fellowship that comes with the Christians. Now, we all read those passages about fellowship and the body and the family, and we sort of try to work at it. We need the unction of the Spirit to come to make it really more real and more genuine. God does help us, but I just get the idea that it could be a whole lot more uh, than it is. Arthur Wallace again, um, he said, true biblical fellowship is one of the most beautiful fruits of the outpouring of the Spirit. Uh, those passages in Acts, it says, all the believers were together and they had everything in common. That's hard to do, you know. It's hard to share all that you have with everyone so everyone has equal. We, we, we play tricks with our minds about what this passage means, but it, it means what it says it means. It says in Acts 4 and 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. Imagine that, just coming together with one purpose, one mind, one heart. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own but they shared everything that they had. That's what we hold in our mind as a biblical vision, but unless the Spirit of God comes, we can't do that. It is almost impossible for us to do that. Communion then, common union, having things in common, quarrels breaking down uh, that have, have kept Christians parted for years, they're all healed, divisions in the church, that are healed. Uh, Edwin Orr says this, with, with scarce an exemption, the churches were working together as one man 
One result was the interdenominational and non-denominational faith mission, such as the Christian uh, Inland Mission. Where does this come from, this interdenominational, non-denominational? It is the Spirit of Christ that wants to bring Christians together. Not a tacky ecumenical thing, but a genuine coming together of Christians with their hearts coming together. With the revival will come new structures. We've had old wine in old wineskins. A revival will bring new wine and new wineskins. You can't put new wine in old wineskins. You will burst the skins and you will lose both the old and the new. So when the revival comes, church changes, structures change. Things become different because God knows he has to create a new structure. We see this picture between um, the, new, the new converts to Christ and, and Judaism. We see at first they tried to keep going. They were predominantly all Jews that, that became Christians. So they tried hard to, to maintain this relationship because in the end it couldn't be maintained. It had to break and it had to come apart. That's just the way it is. History suggests that this applies to Christians as well. A revival will bring us together, but as it, as it stops and, uh, and things cool down, we see walls being erected and people dividing themselves again. So it brings, at the end, uh, a jealousy perhaps or a hostility and a separation of the church so all the wonderful things that come in with revival all the positive things as it cools down we see all the structures of man being re-established again examples of this breaking away we see Methodism breaking away from the Anglicans in the 18th century we see the primitive Methodists breaking away from the Methodists in the 19th century and as I've already mentioned the Pentecostals that were born in the 20th century they broke away from the mainline denominations and to some extent some of you might have said well we saw this with the charismatic movement the charismatic Christians were the Christians that broke away from the denominational churches as God moved upon them by his spirit there was a, a pulling apart and a, a breaking away it's not a bad thing it's just new structures we've got to keep our hearts right but we've got to move on for the new things that God has. Arthur Wallace says, without a change of structure, it is virtually impossible to conserve the fruit of revival. So if one comes, church, the structures that we know it, will definitely change. And if you've embraced it, you too will definitely change. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to come on back next week for our last lesson in the Revival module. Also, if you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, you can make a secure online donation through our website at ariseministry.org.uk. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry a living legacy.